Well, it's almost like on the radio, you just can't handle quiet airtime, you know? If you ever listen to the radio and feel like it goes dead for just a second, you're like, what's going on? That's kind of how I felt this morning. I got to go back and pick up my notes. And it's like, oh, it's quiet. Is that allowed? So I want to talk to you this morning about patience, specifically God's patience and how that relates to us. And the title of my lesson is, Can You Push God to the Limit? Question mark. And one that you're going to know the answer to by the time we separate this morning. But while I was thinking about patience, one of the first things that comes to my mind is parents. And parents are extremely patient. Even if you think your parents are impatient, most parents are patient. How many of you have seen this or even done this? I'm going to count to three. And if that toy is not put away by the count of three, you're going to uh, go to bed without dinner. Or I'm going to smack your booty or whatever. One, two, two and a half. How about put that toy in the basket now or I smack your booty? Pause, smack. But parents are patient. We, we don't know where to draw the line. We got to give grace. Even we need grace. We need patience. We need people giving us a little extra time sometimes. But we also want to train our children, right? And so we don't know what to do. We, we do the best we can. But how many times I've heard two and a half, two and three quarters. I'm like, please, just don't count. You're killing me over here. Either smack the kid or don't. But shut up, please. Uh, but sometimes God is like doing that. I told you to do this, which means now. One, two, so I want to give you a little history lesson real quick of where we are with the kings and the prophets, and I think you'll understand this whole patience thing and pushing God to the limit by the time we finish up. I've got a chart up here for you. We've been doing this almost every week because we're going through Kings and Chronicles, and I just want to help you see it and understand how it all fits together. So what we've seen so far. We saw, uh-oh, there we go. We saw Amaziah. And notice how it says he was both good and evil. Because at first he followed God, and then he turned away from God and walked after idols, just like his father had done. And it was really this thing of influence. I mean, he did just like his father did. His father followed God for a while, and then walked away. Now Amaziah follows God for a while, and then walks away. Well, he walks away, and God lets him suffer for it. Because the king of Israel, on the other side over there, Jehoash, these guys were enemies. He sent a threat to Jehoash, but God wasn't with him behind the threat, so Jehoash went to war with Amaziah, and Jehoash won. They went down to Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem, raided and pillaged the temple, and went back up north. Oh, by the way, he also captured Amaziah. So after Jehoash, Jeroboam too was king of Israel in the north. He was bad king in the sense that he didn't love God. He was an idolater and did bad things. But he was a good king in the sense that he established his kingdom more firmly. But the Bible says that even though he was wicked, God did this as a blessing to them. Because he hadn't gotten a three yet. One, they're still worshiping idols. Two, but he blessed them anyway. And we talked about that a week or two ago. Well, while Jeroboam was king of Israel in the north, 
A guy named Azariah, also known as Uzziah, was king of the south. You notice he's got a big old box because he was king for like 52 years. And while he was king, there was one, two, three, four, five, six kings. His one reign lasted through at least six other kings, or at least he saw six other kings on the throne in the north. Jeroboam II. Then Zechariah became king of the north. He only ruled for six months because he was assassinated by the next king, Shalom, who only ruled one month because he was assassinated by the next king, Menachem. Menachem was able to rule for ten years. While Menachem was king, this is significant, Assyria was a threat. Assyria is extremely important in the Bible. They're the ones that eventually destroy Israel. So they threatened Israel, and Israel paid them tribute to keep them away. It was kind of like blood money, ransom. Hey, you give us money, we won't destroy you. Okay, here's the money. That happened during um, Menachem's reign. He ruled for ten years. Then Pekahiah ruled for two years, and he was assassinated by Pekah. Pekah ruled for 20 years. He was assassinated by Hoshea. During Pekah's reign, Assyria invaded. But they were able to appease them, and they left. During Hoshea's reign, Assyria invaded again. And it was during this invasion that Israel was destroyed, totally annihilated, dispersed, gone, never to be heard from again. We've been looking at the story of Israel, basically from Genesis up to the end of the story, Chronicles. And now Israel's destroyed. Do you think that's the end of the story? Let me talk to you a little bit about why this happened and God's perspective of what went down and any future these people may or may not have had. God and Israel made a covenant. Let's just call it a contract. They struck a deal. God said, I'll take care of you and do all these wonderful things if you obey me. And Israel said, deal. Here's God's side of the covenant, okay? If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands. So you can almost see it in a contract. I get, if carefully follow all the commands I give you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction but flee from you from seven. So God said, you follow me, I am going to bless your socks off. That was God's side of the bargain. Israel had a side of the bargain too. And they agreed to keep it. When Moses went and told the people the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. So we have a contract. Two parties agree to something. Now, contracts are ancient. Back in the days, even before Israel, which is one of the oldest nations around, even before Israel, some of the, the kings of Mesopotamia would have these contracts which historians know as suzerain treaties. The king is the suzerain. And the village or the territory, the vassals, 
they would make a treaty with the king. So the king would come in and say, I promise to keep all foreign invaders away. If any of your farms are attacked, I will go to war for you if you're my vassals. And if there's famine or plague and you run out of food, I will give from, for you from the royal granaries. And you have the right to trade in my city at a 20% tax to the government. Do we have a deal? And the people would say, yeah, that we've been raided all the time. And Okay, deal. And they have a, a treaty. But in any deal, any covenant, there's always a penalty clause. What if somebody doesn't keep their side of the bargain? So let's say you have a, a lease on a piece of property. Uh, you, you, you have an annual lease for your apartment or whatever. You have both sides have an agreement, and then there's the penalty clause. The landlord says, we guarantee you habitable, a habitable place for this next year. We will provide water, heating, air conditioning, any major repairs we will take care of in a prompt manner. You will give us $1,000 a month at the first of the month every year. Deal? Deal. But if you don't, you will have a three-day grace period. After that, we assess a penalty of 6%. And if you still don't pay, then we begin eviction, and you agree to pay for the eviction proceedings, plus you lose your security deposit and one month's rent. Penalty clause. Each side has an agreement. And then there's the penalty clause. That's how all contracts work. And they're ancient. Here's the penalty clause from the Bible with God's and Israel's contract. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so will it please him to ruin and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations, from one end of earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. So God says, I'm giving you this land, and I will bless you in it. But if you turn from me, I will kick you out of the land. As much as I blessed you in, I will curse you out. Do we have an accord? And Israel was like, yeah. And God was like, yeah. It was a beautiful thing. So, God kept up his end of the bargain. He took the children of Israel miraculously out of Egypt. Who's ever heard of such a thing like that before? It had never happened before. And then when they're in the desert, there's no water. So what does he do? He makes rocks pour out water. There's no food. He rains it down from heaven. Even their shoes didn't wear out. Forty years walking through the wilderness, their shoes didn't wear out. You guys have been over in Afghanistan and Iraq. How long your boots last? I guarantee you they ain't lasting 40 years. God even blessed their footwear. God kept up his end of the bargain. He was a good God. But then there's the other side of the party, the other party. They didn't keep up their end of the bargain. After Solomon, the kingdom split into two. That's what we've been looking at. From king number one, Jeroboam, all the way up to Hoshea, every king has endorsed idolatry. Every one. 200 years of unbroken idolatry. 200 years of God saying, one, two. Now listen, if you own a piece of property and somebody doesn't pay their mortgage, you immediately assess the penalty clause because you have an interest in that property. It's paying your mortgage back home or whatever. It's your place. And they agreed. And then if they still don't pay, you kick them out. 
God waited 200 years. Talk about patience. But really, that's not right, because I took you after Solomon. What about before Solomon? During the times of the judges, which is about 350 years. Time and again, idols, idols, idols. Well, let's go back to the 40 years in the wilderness, another 40 years. You put all these years together, we've got roughly 600 years of Israel breaking their contract. And God kept saying, two, two and a half. Why didn't he just say three? Boom. Same reason you count it all. He loves his children, even his bad children. He's patient. He's loving. He's kind. But can you push him to the limit? Well, Israel just found out, yes, you can. Because they hit it. And that was it. The invaders came in and off they went. Israel broke the covenant after 600 years. And Israel was evicted from their home. All right. Because of this covenant... And because of God's relationship with Israel, there's a lengthy portion of Scripture that explains what happened, how it happened, and why it happened. It, it's almost like you can hear the prosecutor, or maybe the judge, reading off the sentence. Uh, you've been evicted because you did this, and you did this, and you did this. That's, we're going to read a, a portion of it. Let me give you the Bible's perspective of what happened condensed. The king of Assyria invaded the entire land, marched against Samaria. Remember, that's the capital of Israel. Marched against Samaria and laid siege to it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. Assyria had this policy. They would invade a land, take out many of the citizens and put them into other parts of their empire and take other people from their empire and put them back. Which made sense. If half your community is just fractured, there's no chance of rebellion. Nobody there knows the land. They don't know each other. They're going to try to get settled in. It was a pretty smart policy. So they exported tons and tons of Israelites and brought in a bunch of Assyrians who lived in Samaria, who became known later as the Samaritans. That's where the Samaritans come from. They intermingled with the Israelites that were left. And so they were kind of like a half-breed people who sort of followed God and sort of didn't follow God. And after a while, their religion changed again, and they even built their own temple and started to follow the Bible in their own way. And so there was a temple in Samaria and a temple in Jerusalem. And to this very day, you can visit the archaeological remains of that temple in Samaria. So all this took place. Now here comes the prosecution's case. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel, one, 
to... He warned them time and again through all his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants the prophets. But they would not listen. And they were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant, the contract that he made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. Wow. There's a passage of scripture that says people can become worthless. Knowing what God has said about people, the dignity he's given us, higher than the angels, that he sent his own son to die for our sins, knowing how much he loves us, there comes a point where he can look at people and say, they are worthless. Wow. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts of heavens and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was angry very angry with Israel, and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. And even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices of Israel. So here we are. God was patient with them for 600 years. He reached his limit. He had them destroyed. The end. But oddly, it doesn't end there. So I say the end, but is it? With a big question mark? Because the Bible continues. And we hear about these people again. So how crazy is this? God makes a deal with them. They break it for 600 years. God kicks them out of the land. That should be the end. But it's not. He They broke the covenant, they worshipped idols, they sacrificed their children to idols, they practiced sorcery, perversion, committed atrocities. God had them conquered and deported, and still this isn't the end of the story. In fact, one of my favorite prophecies in all the Bible kind of indirectly addresses this. Let me read it to you. It's from Jeremiah chapter 31. The time is coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. There it is. They broke my covenant. So check this out. I'm going to make a new covenant with them. Who would do that? So I'm renting to you a place. You break the lease. You don't pay me. I have to take you to court. You trash the place. And then the sheriff's department evicts you. And I come back to you and say, you want another lease? Not me. I'm not giving you another lease. In fact, any of my friends, I'm going to tell them not to give you a lease. You're bad. Staying away from you. You're bad for business. You're just bad. But here's God. Pushed him to the limit. Kicked you out of the land. Then he invites you back. That is so God. I don't understand that kind of patience. It's just too patient. It's too gracious. It's too kind. Enough already. Be done. But no. 
The days are coming when I will make a new covenant. This is what the Lord says. Who appoints the sun to shine by day. Who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night. Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is His name. If these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me? God says, yeah, I will totally and completely wipe out Israel when the sun stops shining and the waves start hit, stop hitting the beach and the stars go black. God is saying, and it's mentioned elsewhere, because of his love for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promise he made them and his love for Israel, he will never let them be completely and utterly annihilated. Chances are, None of you have ever met a Philistine, a Canaanite, a Perizzite, a Hivite, a Jebusite, a Girgashite. These were all the mightier nations around the time of Israel. Where are these people? They're gone. Well, God never made a covenant with them that they would last forever. And there has never been a people on the face of the earth as despised as the Jewish people, whom almost every nation has either chased out or tried to annihilate and yet still they live because of this covenant, this promise that God made to them. This is what the Lord says, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of what they have done, declares the Lord. Don't be jealous. Be thankful that our God is that gracious, that patient that kind. Because if he'll treat Israel that way, you know he's going to treat you that way too because there is no favoritism with God. God promised Israel would never be completely annihilated. But listen, people, we don't have that promise about the United States. Elections are coming. Give it some serious thought. Pray and support the right people. God promised Israel would never be completely annihilated. And he said a new covenant would come. It's almost, it's like a two-sided coin. On the one hand, you can say then his patience has no limits. Because even after he punished them, he offered them another chance. So on the one hand, you can say his patience has no limits, and it's true. But on the other hand, they were punished. And those people who were under siege for three years with no food and no drink and eating each other, to keep from starving to death and then being deported wouldn't tell you about God's patience and mercy at that moment. So it's like a two-sided coin. On the one hand, you can say His mercy endures forever. And on the other hand, you don't want to be there when you push Him to His limits. So it's both. It's both. It's, uh, people often ask me questions about the Bible. Steve, is it this or is it this? And my answer is yes. Yes, it is. Which one? Well, wait a minute, your fallacy is assuming it has to be one or the other. Who said it has to be one or the other? Why can't it be both? Well, that doesn't make any sense. That's not my problem. That's not God's problem. Making sense doesn't come on the top ten list of things that God does. Love doesn't make sense. Have you ever thought, why do we take care of babies? They make a lot of noise. They keep you up at night. They're expensive. And they stink. <laughs> and they throw up on you trying to make them happy, and they puke all over. Why do we do that? Why don't we just throw them away? There's no logical explanation, people. The only explanation is love. 
Love is a gift from God. It has nothing to do with logic. The kind of patience we give to our children is the kind of patience God gives to us because we are his children. But even our children sometimes get kicked out of the family home, depending on their behavior and their lack of repentance. Listen to what Proverbs 29 says. A man who still won't obey after being warned many times will suddenly be destroyed. Nothing can save him. So the question is, how many warnings do we get from God before we hit that point where the button's pressed, where we are suddenly destroyed? I don't know. You want to take your chances? I don't. I don't want to take my chances. God warns people. Keep resisting him and risk being lost forever. That's a serious warning. It is true he'll say one, two, two and a half, which makes you think he'll never get to three. But he does get to three. And after he gets to three, it's too late. Don't push God to the limit. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God was patient for 600 years, but he promised them a new covenant. The Bible also records the fulfillment of that promise. So Israel, the northern kingdom, was destroyed in 721 B.C. by the Assyrians. Judah was left. They had some good kings and bad kings, so they lasted a bit longer. But by 605, 597, 586, Babylon had come in three times, and on that third time, Judah was destroyed too. Then they came back about 70 years later. So that's putting us at about 500 B.C. When's the new covenant going to come if the promise was made between 700 and 500 B.C.? The Bible ends there, for the most part, till about 400 years pass. And then there's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And they say, are you the Messiah? And he says, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. There he is, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We're coming up to the Easter and Passover season. It was during Passover that Jesus sat down with his disciples and listened to what he said. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. Aha! The new covenant! The one we've been waiting 400 years for! The one we never should have gotten! Jesus brought it! This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the, for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says he's not going to drink from that again until he drinks it new with his disciples in the kingdom. Israel had been waiting 400 years for a new covenant. I'd like to say by the time Jesus came on the scene, they had gotten their act together, they were worshiping God, and all was good, and he was offering this new covenant to a bunch of wonderful people. Nope. Nope. Not at all. In fact, the leaders of the Romans who were in charge and of the nation of Israel who are in charge, conspired together to kill him. How like us is that? And how like God is it to know that's going to happen and use that as the moment to launch his new covenant? 
Wow. Oh, and this covenant, so much better than the last one. See, the last one had the suzerain who said he would give you this and this and this and had the vassal who must do this and this and this and the penalty clause. This covenant has the suzerain who says, I will bless you for all eternity with a happy home in heaven and sin will be no more. Your job, trust me and turn from your sins. Penalty clause is none. There's a footnote that says, see the cross. Jesus paid the penalty clause. Who would do that? Who would take on a contract with bad people and then suffer the consequences they knew they were going to make? Who would do that? God did that. Crazy good. Insane good. When we sit down and partake of communion, we thank the Lord for that crazy goodness, for establishing a new covenant that not only Israel is a part of, but all of us are a part of. And that was his plan from day one. He knew Israel was going to stumble, and that would open up the door to let everybody in. That was his plan. And now his plan is us to bring the gospel back to Israel. That's his plan, too. Well, I've got some really good news for you. If you agree to the new covenant, your fate is secure and sealed forever. Your suzerain, your king, will take away your sin, usher you into heaven, where it will be great forever. No penalty clause, no slipping back, no bad at all. But if you don't choose to sign on the dotted line to trust Jesus and turn from your sin, you're somewhere right now between one and three. And I have no idea where it is. And you have until three to make up your mind whenever that is. So I would encourage you, don't push God to the limit because he does have one. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So I wanted to have communion again this month because we talked about it this morning and it only makes sense. And hopefully it'll make a little more sense. You'll understand why I explain to you what I explain to you every month when we have communion. I say this is only for those who follow Jesus. This is the sign of the covenant. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is not your event. But I also tell you, even if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're not in a good place with him right now, if there's sin in your life that you're unwilling to turn away from, you should not take communion. How can you go and honor the covenant that you're presently breaking? The good thing is, as soon as you're willing to say, sorry, it's forgiven, it's done, it's over. It doesn't matter anymore. But it's a shame, it's an insult to go up to Jesus and say, thanks for dying for my sins while you're still hugging on to your sins. So here's what I encourage you to do. If you're a follower of Jesus, look into your heart and see if there's anything in your life right now that you just know isn't right. Ask God to forgive you and to give you the strength to overcome it. Be willing to abandon it completely. If you are, then come up and take communion. If you're not, then don't. If you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe this morning you'd like to make that decision. Maybe this morning you would like to say, you know what? I'm not straddling the fence anymore. I believe in God. I do. I believe in Jesus. I'm going to follow him. Turn from your sins. Have a prayer. And come up and thank him for the new covenant when you take your communion. So I'll give you a couple of minutes to do that. 
Mike, do you have anything for us?
gave us something to do to recognize that and uh, and Lord we just thank you for the work on the cross and the work in our lives Lord as we are all changing and we're all changing for the better Lord we just thank you for that and it's in your name we pray Amen